This is the Alone With Our Principles podcast, episode 20. When Morris comes home, he and I will just have a little chat. Embracing sweaty palm conversations. I'm Eric. And I'm Chris, and we're both elementary school principals in the Hesperia Unified School District in Southern California. On this episode, we have the privilege of talking with author and speaker Mike Robbins. Mike is the author of five books, including his new title, We're All in This Together, Creating a Teen Culture of High Performance, Trust, and Belonging. For the past 20 years, he's been a sought-after speaker and consultant who delivers keynotes and seminars for some of the top organizations in the world. His clients include Google, Wells Fargo, Microsoft, Genentech, eBay, Harvard University, Gap, LinkedIn, the Oakland A's, and many others. He and his work have been featured in the New York Times and the Harvard Business Review, as well as on NPR and ABC News. He's a regular contributor to Forbes, hosts his own podcast called We're All In This Together, and his books have been translated into 15 different languages. Alone With Our Principles is unofficially sponsored by Louisville Slugger and GNC Nutrition, coming at you like a bat out of health. mess with the bull, young man. You'll get the horns. You've got a real attitude problem, McFly. You're a slacker. So far this semester, he has been absent nine times. I'm the principal, man. All right, well, Mike, thank you for being with us today. Uh, Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. It's good to uh, connect with you here. So how's things been going in, uh, you know, in your world? I know with the pandemic, it kind of cuts into what you're, what you're normally doing, traveling the world, uh, giving your presentations. What's that been like for you? You know, I mean, look, I'm just like everybody. I mean, my world's gotten disrupted pretty significantly over the last uh, 11, almost 12 months. Um, but, you know, thankfully, everybody in our house is, is safe and healthy and uh, we're all spending a lot of time on Zoom, including our uh, 12-year-old and 15-year-old daughters. But, uh, you know, it's just been a lot happening in the world for sure. And it's, uh, it's changed a lot of what I do and how I do it. But uh, I am grateful that uh, we have this technology that we can still connect with each other, even if it's uh, virtual and not in person, you know. Yeah, we're all building up our skills uh, in technology uh, out of necessity. But I think there's a lot of things that are going to stay with us even after the pandemic ends. So to give For our listeners sure. uh, a little bit of background, uh, we became familiar with you and your work. I think it was 2011 when you came out and presented to our district leadership. And yep. I think uh, that was after your first or second book. And I know that resonated with so many of us, uh, especially our superintendent at the time and then you know our district leadership. So then you were invited back in 2015 for a couple of different events, uh, you kicked off our all district in service. And there's a highlight of that. I want to, I don't know if you remember, but it certainly, uh, you know, brought back memories for me. And then you did a professional development day, what we call our plugged in. You were the keynote speaker for that. I don't know if you remember, but at the all district in service, you had followed a couple of different speakers and everybody had been sitting in the auditorium for a while. And then, right. then you came out and got everybody um, loosened up and back into it. And then right in the middle of your topic, why is this happening to me versus why is this happening for me? You started having microphone issues. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I think I do remember that. And, and what I remember from that is your brilliant ad lib in the midst of the glitching. As soon as you got the new mic, your first line was, why is this happening for me? And it just brought the house <laughs> down. And it was such a brilliant ad lib. Um, but I, I think we want to go back and let you start by uh, talking about the path that brought you 
to being an author and being a speaker? Because uh, I know that's a huge part of your story. So we'll just let you tell that. Absolutely. Well, you know, Chris, thanks for having me on. And it's great to connect with both you and Eric and everybody listening. And it's been great to be connected with you and everybody in the Hesperia Unified School District over the years. Uh, I've had a lot of fun the times I've come down there and you and I've had a chance to stay in touch and email about baseball and life. And so, you know, my life, my early life, as you well know, um, I grew up in the Bay Area in Oakland, actually. I li we live in Marin County now. Um, but I was a baseball player all growing up as a kid. I loved it. I was passionate about it. I was a huge Oakland A's fan and played T-ball in Little League and, you know, Babe Ruth ball and all the way through and ended up getting drafted out of high school by your favorite team, the New York Yankees. Yeah, we're going um, to put a pin in that and get, we'll circle back around later. <laughs> yes. Well, I, you know, I had tried to explain to people and you'll appreciate this as a lifelong Yankee fan. I got drafted by the Yankees in 1992. So it was during kind of a rough stretch for the Yankees and they're still the New York Yankees. Right. But so when you're, you know, 17, 18 years old and it's 92 and the Yankees haven't been to the playoffs in like at that point, I think it had been 10, 11 years, you know, a few years later, of course, they went back on that crazy run and won a bunch of titles. And, uh, but I didn't end up signing with the Yankees um, mostly because I got an opportunity to play baseball in college at Stanford. So I went to Stanford, played there, then got drafted in 1995 after my junior year by the Kansas City Royals and signed a contract with the Royals at that time. Um, actually, although it's super exciting to get drafted like a team by a team like the Yankees, it's actually uh, better for your career to get drafted <laughs> by a team like the Royals. <laughs> Because you know, the chances of making it to the big leagues in the Kansas City Royals organization are a lot easier than in the New York Yankees organization just for a bunch of baseball reasons. But I was excited to get drafted by the Royals, even though I'd grown up, you know, rooting for the A's and the Royals seem to always beat the A's. But anyway, I sign, I go into the minor leagues as you do in baseball. Unfortunately for me, um, I got injured. I was a pitcher and my third season in tore ligaments in my elbow ended up having three surgeries on my arm over the next two years. And by the age of 25, I was forced to retire from baseball after starting at seven, which was incredibly difficult and painful, not just physically, but, you know, mentally, emotionally. Like, I mean, I'd gone to college. I'd gotten a degree in American studies with a specialization in race and ethnicity, was interested in learning, but had always, all I ever really wanted to do was play baseball. Um, but the big realization that I had when my career ended in baseball was oops, I forgot to appreciate it. I was so busy. You know, I was this kid, single mom from Oakland. We didn't have a lot of money. I wasn't the biggest. I wasn't the strongest. I had to work really hard. I figured I'd make it to the big leagues one day, hopefully, and then I would appreciate it. Um, but up to that point in my life, even though I was pretty good, I spent most of my time thinking I wasn't good enough, comparing myself to everyone around me and like holding on, you know, like holding my breath really tight, hoping that I didn't mess it up. And when it was all said and done, I realized, oops, <laughs> I think I missed the point. Right. And, you know, it was a painful way to learn a really important lesson. Although I didn't know the full significance of the lesson, you know, I'm 25 years old when baseball finally ends and I have to like come home and get a job and figure out what the heck am I going to do with the rest of my life. Um, so I spent a couple of years in the tech world in the late nineties um, cause that's what was happening at the time. And I met a couple of people and some guy who had pitched at North Carolina hired me to sell internet advertising. Like it was literally like, I just need a job to pay the rent. But I, what ended up happening for me as I went through the next couple of years of trying to sort of figure myself out and who am I, if I'm not a baseball player and what am I going to do? What became abundantly clear to me that I was super interested in both personally and somewhat selfishly, because I was trying to work my way through a very difficult transition, but I was fascinated by 
sort of psychology, our own psychology, what makes us tick? How do we get over loss and difficulty? What, what makes the difference in the mindset between people who succeed and fail? And then collectively, I'd always been fascinated by team dynamics as an athlete, like that team chemistry thing that was like intangible, but super important. And when I got laid off from my dot-com job in the summer of 2000, when the NASDAQ crashed and the dot-com bubble burst, I... It wasn't like an instantaneous thing, but over this, a series of a few months and then meeting my now wife, Michelle, I got inspired to just start a business. I didn't know if it could actually be a business because I was young and naive at the time, but I wanted to motivate people. I wanted to inspire people. I wanted to share my story. And whether it was kids in elementary school or high school or whether it was you know people working for companies or in schools or other places, I didn't know where I was going to go or what I was going to do or who I was going to motivate if anyone was going to be interested in hearing what I had to say. But I just had this really deep calling and yearning. Like I want to be out in the world helping people personally, individually, but also groups collectively try to figure some of this crazy life stuff out that, uh, you know, and I say this with all love and respect to educators and education, a lot of the stuff that we don't learn in school directly in the classroom that is super important to life that I'd always been really fascinated by. So that's a long answer to your simple question, but that's ultimately how I got on the path. And it's been 20 years and, you know, five books later, and I've gotten to meet amazing people like you and others around the country and around the world and feel super blessed to get to do what I do. Now, which came first for you? Because uh, something that I know and seeing your, uh, reading your books and seeing your work, did you uh, go into the speaking part of it first or did you write your book and then follow that up with the speaking part of it? Well, I mean, so I started speaking first. You know, it was 2000 when I really got the idea. And then 2001, it was January of 2001, I sort of declared, I'm going to start this business. And what I really wanted to do, Chris, was speak. I mean, that was the main thing, right? that I was passionate about, excited about being sort of a motivational speaker. Now I thought in order to do that at that time, especially, you know, I'd watch the Oprah Winfrey show or I'd see some infomercial of someone. And I was like, well, you have to like write a book to do that, don't you? And then I found out there was actually this whole world of professional speaking where, yeah, people were authors, but it wasn't a, a prerequisite. So I decided, yeah, I would. So I started working on my first book, Focus on the Good Stuff, that first year in 2001 when I started my business. That book didn't end up getting published until 2007. And that was a whole journey and a whole process to learn how the publishing world worked and to get an opportunity to actually write that book. But my first speaking engagement that I did sort of officially as my business of motivational speaker in January, I think it was January 4th, 2001, was at Skyline High School in Oakland, California, where my alma mater, my buddy, James Salazar, who's still the baseball coach there, had just gotten the job. And I called up James. I was reaching out to all my friends and people that I knew. And I just said, hey, James, can I come speak to the student athletes at Skyline? Um, I think I could share some things from my journey being at Skyline and then being at Stanford and then playing professional baseball. Maybe they'd be interested. And he said, sure. So, you know, in front of the, you know, football players and basketball players and baseball players and all the rest of the student athletes in six period PE, I gave a talk, you know, they were all sitting on the bleachers and I have no idea if they thought it was interesting or not, but that was my first <laughs> motivational speech. They didn't pay me, but it was kind of like in my mind, I, someone had said to me, if you want to become a professional speaker, go give a hundred free talks. And by the end of it, someone will pay you. And I was like, okay, well, that's my plan. And that was talk number one. And I, I had a little notebook and I would write down in my notebook what I talked about and what worked and what didn't work. And I figured, hey, you know, I'll figure this thing out a hundred talks in, maybe someone will pay me. And so that was kind of how it started. So now here we are, what, 20, 21 years into your career. 
Um, yep. What part of your job do you like more? If you can make that decision, do you like being the speaking and everything that goes along with that, the travel, uh, the audiences, or do you like the authorship part of it where you get to sit down in your room or, or your office and write a book? Which, which, oh, a hundred percent the speaking part. I mean, and, and for me, it's anything like even this having this conversation with you guys talking is my favorite thing to do in life pretty much. Um, and, and it's, it's amazing to me. I mean, my, my, our, our daughters joke all the time, dad, you talk too much. You talk too much. And I'm like, listen, <laughs> dad actually gets to make a living talking. So my, my dad, my dad was actually in radio and television. Um, and I never wanted to go that path. But so the speaking to me is what I love. Writing for me has always been a chore, a challenge. I appreciate when I'm done writing. I appreciate when it's, whether it's a book or an article or even a post on social media, like when it's out there, I appreciate because it can reach people in way different ways than speaking. You can only speak to so many people. I mean, I love podcasts because you never know who's going to hear this, but I really love what I love the most. And I have missed a lot during the pandemic, even though I've been doing a ton of virtual presentations on Zoom or Skype or WebEx or whatever platform we're using. I miss being in the room with whether it's 10 people sitting around a table or it's, you know, 50 or a hundred people or a thousand. I mean, it doesn't matter the size of group, just being in a in a room with people, having a conversation, engaging people, you know, that is, is my joy. It's my sort of happy place. And the writing part, um, is I, I think I've gotten a little bit better at it over the years, but it's it's still not my favorite. I mean, I was the kid in school, by the way. If you'd asked any of my English teachers in high school um, or even any of my professors in college, and and I, if I would have told them or myself all those years ago, hey, you know, in 2021, I'll have authored five books, they all would have laughed, myself <laughs> included, because like I was in my dorm freshman year in college. There was a whiteboard out front and all the kids in the dorm would like start to place bets. There was odds on how much sleep I was going to get the night before a paper was due. And usually it was zero hours of sleep because I was the ultimate wait till the last second, the absolute last moment to do the paper, just because the thought of sitting down to write was just always so confronting and scary to me. And like, the little gremlin in my mind would go crazy. And I've gotten a little bit better at that now at 47 years old, but not that much, to be honest with you. And I share that a lot of times with people when they're talking about writing and everyone has their own process around it. But I think it's more about just the willingness to put your ideas out there instead of trying to make them perfect. Um, but the thing that I enjoy much more about speaking is it's it's kind of an in-the-moment thing and it's relational. Even us talking here on you know, Zoom as we can see each other. I know people listening to us can just hear it in, in audio, but it, it, there's a, a presence and a dynamic. If I just sit in my computer and write something, it's hard for me to understand. And Chris, I appreciate you and I've known each other for years and you'll respond to things that I write or a book or get it for your team or whatever. It, that always makes me happy, not just selfishly and ego-wise. It's like, oh, someone's actually going to read the thing that I wrote that I sat in that room by myself sort of stressing out about, does this make sense? Does anyone care about this? But if we were all in the room together, if I were talking, I could tell pretty instantaneously if you thought this was interesting or completely annoying, <laughs> just because people don't have very good poker faces. And after doing this for 20 years, I can tell like, oh, this really isn't resonating. They don't understand or care what I'm talking about. So let me change, change course. Well, and, you know, Eric and I have talked about this, too. One thing that we've noticed in, in here is the uh, overly compliment the guest segment. Uh, one, of the, <laughs> one of the things that really stands out to me when we've seen you speak and then in reading your books is that you do an outstanding job of capture, capturing your speaking voice in your writing. 
uh, having, mm. having read Thank a you. lot of leadership books and having seen a lot of presenta- presentations, a lot of presenters that have a book, you can tell that they're a presenter that wrote a book and there's not really a connection. Or it's a great yeah. author, but then you see them speak and that's not really their wheelhouse. Right. And, and not only – I mean I can hear you tell the story about – which is one of my favorites. We're not going to make you tell it here, but my favorite of your stories is the reaction when you get taken out of a game. Like if it's the, <laughs> if it's the first inning and the score is 8 nothing, that's going to be a different conversation than right. if it's the eighth inning. But yep. you know, having read all of your books, that is something that you've clearly developed. I went back and read a couple mm. chapters of Focus on the Good Stuff um, in getting ready for this episode, and it's there. Yeah. But then you read the stories in – uh, we're all in this together. And I can almost literally hear your voice because it matches exactly your speaking. And that, that cannot well, be something that's easy. I, I listen, I, I really appreciate you saying that. And uh, I'm humbled to hear that because one of the challenges for me when I wrote my first book, Focus on the Good Stuff, you know, I've been working on that book from the time I started my business. I was 26 years old, about to turn 27. Um, I was just figuring out how to speak and what my voice was and what my message was. And over the span of five or six years to finally get that book published. When I sat down to write it, you know, I was now in my early thirties. I'd been speaking for four or five years, but I had a really hard time because I would say to my wife, Michelle, all the time, like, babe, if I just had to give like a, a, a five hour lecture presentation workshop on this, it would be super easy, but trying to write it down in a way that makes sense. Cause the other thing about me is I'm not a big reader. I'm an auditory learner. I learned how to read late and I struggled even in school, even though I did well in school, I struggled when they would hand us a book and say, read the book. It was like, oh, if we could have a discussion about the book, then I was totally in. But if I had to sit and read it by myself, it was hard. And, and you all as educators, you, you know this, that kids learn in different ways. And in, you know, in the seventies and eighties, as I was growing up, they weren't as aware of those things <laughs> as we are today. And so I say all of that because when I wrote those, my first two books back to back, focus on the good stuff and then uh, be yourself. Everyone else has already taken. I really struggled. Like I love those books. I'm proud of those books. Those took a lot for me, but I had a hard time getting my voice into the book in the way that now I do feel like, and I appreciate you saying, cause you've read all my books and we've known each other for years. I've worked really hard to try to say, okay, I don't know how great these books are necessarily. I think they're pretty good, but I want them to sound like me. I want it to be like me having a conversation with the reader because that's what I do, whether it's on my podcast, whether it's in a presentation, whether it's a coaching session or I'm working with a team is like, we're talking, I'm sure I'm telling stories and we're having conversations and doing exercises that I'm hoping are impacting people. So anyway, that's a long response to your very kind words. And, and that's what I hope to do in all of my writing these days is just not try. And this is something I learned years ago. And I think this is an important like leadership lesson for what it's worth is talk about the things that you know about. Don't try to pretend like you know stuff that you don't know. Like I constantly am referencing myself or my own life or people that I know or people that I've met or things I've seen, not because I want to be self-absorbed and all about me, but it's like, I can speak about these things with some level of authenticity and authority because I've experienced them. And I always feel like, you know, the more personal, the more universal you know, the more if I tell my own story, even though it might be me talking about me, it's like if I'm willing to be real and even vulnerable about it, other people are probably going to be able to relate to it in their own way. Not because their life is like my life, but because we have so much common ground as human beings when we tell the truth. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, you just mentioned the word vulnerable, which is, you know, vulnerability is something that for me personally, I've been kind of on this journey to 
learn about and understand. And I'm, you know, I'm reading Brene Brown and of course read all your books yeah. and listened to you. And, and one of the things I appreciate is, is, you know, it always, you always come from a place of vulnerability, you know, and I, I've, I've heard your story multiple times, but I just learned something new a few minutes ago when you were talking about, I was going to ask you like, so do you remember that first time you got up and spoke and without asking you, you talked about that, but, you know, <laughs> talk about having an example of, of, you know, we know that courage and vulnerability go hand in hand and, and talk about stepping out of your comfort zone doing something and not knowing what the outcome is going to be or how it's going to be received. And one of the things that I appreciate about listening to you and reading your books is that's always a theme of, of being able to put that out there and take some risks and have courage. Um, so yeah. it, it's taught me a lot. Oh, well, Eric, I appreciate you saying that, you know, and the thing what's amazing and I love hearing you say that because look, you guys know, like I know most of us in life and especially as men, like we're not taught or encouraged to be vulnerable. It's like, that's right. weak, suck it up. You know, and again, Men and women get different messages growing up. We get it as kids, but for different reasons, we're told to sort of, as, as our friend Brene Brown would say, to sort of armor up and, and protect ourselves. And what's interesting, you know, again, as an athlete, I remember, you know, I was pretty good all the way through from the time I was little playing T-ball, playing Little League. You know, there were times if I was nine years old on the Little League team and there were 12-year-old kids, you know, they were bigger than me and better than me. So I was a little more insecure, but I would have success at each level in baseball. But what, and then same thing in school, but I constantly felt insecure and nervous about whatever the heck I was doing, not because I wasn't good at it, but just the thing for me that was always a disconnect was that no one was talking about how I was feeling. So I thought I was crazy. Yeah. Right. Like I'm like looking around going, how come no one looks as nervous as I feel about whatever this is, whether it's, whether it's like asking a girl to dance at the dance or it's, you know, turning in my term paper in English class, or it's getting on the pitcher's mound or whatever the heck it was. It was like, I would feel all of that fear and insecurity, even though I was excited and I did have some confidence, but nobody else talked about it. So again, then I just thought I was crazy and that just kept happening more and more. And then I get to college and it's even more extreme. Like I'm better, you know, I know more things. I think I'm a better student as a sophomore in college than I was as a sophomore in high school, but like I'm around all these other smart kids and, you know, and then I'm in, on, in baseball, it's like, I'm that much, I have that much more experience as an athlete. And so it was for me, a lot of the vulnerability and even sharing about it even to this day is somewhat self-serving in that like, I don't like that feeling of feeling like I'm crazy and there's something wrong with me. So I'll just say it out loud. And usually, even though there is a fear of people go, well, you're weird. Or why would you say that? Or what's up with you? Almost always people are like, oh my gosh, I feel like that too. Thanks yeah, for saying that. Exactly. And then it's like, okay, we can all then tell the truth. And now let's deal with whatever the heck it is we have to deal with. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and I mean, I was probably, if you, if you, if either of you as classroom teachers had me in high school, you probably would have gotten annoyed with me because I was the annoying kid in the back of the class that would raise my hand and say, Mr. Johnson, I, I understand that the Pythagorean theorem is important, but when am I going to use this in my life? <laughs> and he would look at me like, are you kidding? Can you stop it? I'm trying to teach these kids geometry, leave me alone. But I was always just wanting to understand, like, why are we learning what we're learning? Not that I don't think it's important, but can you help teach me things? You know, I grew up without my dad around. I grew up with a lot of things I was missing. I wanted some of those things and was just hungry for it. Um, and, and, and found in a weird way, even as a kid, but definitely in, in my life as an adult, that the more willing we are to admit how we feel and what we think and what's going on, the more likely we are to not only relate and connect with people, but also get help and support. Yeah, absolutely. 
if we're sucking it up and acting like we have it all together, like we're not, we're not available. We don't let people know, Hey, I could use some help or I could use some support. Well, when you ask for help, sometimes you just might get help, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Amazing how that works out. I know. You've just started school and the path you choose now may be the one you follow for the rest of your life. All right. So we're going to have a little fun now. We're going to segue into a section that we call the quiz. So a little bit, yeah. a little bit to get to know, uh, get to know you in a little bit different from your work. So if, okay. you, if you could, first question, what is a funny or memorable story from when you were a student in school? Funny or memorable story when I was a student in school. Um, so, so my June, this is the one that just popped into my head. My junior year in high school, my girlfriend and I dressed up as each other for Halloween. So she wore my baseball uniform and I somehow or another, I still know my girls, I tell my girls the other day, I fit into her cheerleading outfit somehow or another. <laughs> I don't know exactly again, but we dressed up as each other and I like wore a wig and the whole thing and everybody thought it was very cute. So there's gotta be a picture out there somewhere, somewhere you would think, <laughs> thank goodness. Again, I guess for better or worse, there was no Instagram or Facebook in those days. So there we can't go. find uh, the photo. Yeah. There you go. All right. So the next question is, I almost want to feel like I want to preface this one with saying, you know, baseball is off the table, but you know, I'll ask anyway. So the next one is, uh, how about the best job you've ever had outside of what you're currently doing your current profession as an author and a speaker? I think, um, you know, one of the coolest jobs that I had when I was in high school, same time around that, um, I worked at a little Italian place up the street from my house. So I could walk to it and I learned how to make pizzas, which was cool and fun. And then I got to deliver pizzas, which is an awesome job to have in general. And I wasn't out a ton, but like on a Friday night as a, you know, junior or senior in high school, I could get in my car and go deliver a pizza. And then I could go meet up with my friends wherever they were for a minute and just figure out what the plans were for later and then come back. So I just thought, and I got paid. So I just thought that was the coolest job ever. I learned how to make pizzas, deliver them and go see my friends. And uh, it was cool. Nice. All right, and the last question on our quiz here. What movie, TV show, or music group brings back vivid memories of your high school years? Oh, geez. Um, I would say, God, so many. But the two that popped into my head were Arsenio Hall and In Living Color. So I grew up in Oakland. I graduated from Skyline High School in 1992. Um, most of the cultural influence of my high school was African-American influence. So those two shows were such a big deal in the black community, but also just in general that it was like all of a sudden in the early nineties, there was an African-American version of Saturday Night Live and there was an African-American version of Johnny Carson and all the kids and all the families and everyone that I grew up around was so excited. I didn't totally understand it as a white kid growing up, the significance of it, but I loved both those shows and thought they were awesome and hilarious and cool because it was all the pop culture of my time. But when I look back now and I realize what a big deal both of those shows were, and I just appreciate it in a certain way from where I grew up and how I grew up. I'm a man of respect around here. They love me around here. I'm a swell guy. Awesome. Okay. So uh, if it's okay, we're going to get into kind of the meat of why we asked you to, to join us today. And once again, thank you for yes. being here. But, you know, your most recent book, uh, We're All in This Together, identifies mm -hmm. four kind of pillars, you call them. And so yes. uh, we were kind of hoping, Mike, you'd indulge us a little maybe and just talk a little bit briefly about the four pillars. And of course, uh, you know, we, we kind of want to uh, emphasize a little bit pillar three, sweaty palm conversations. I know that's something for Chris sure. and I as school administrators. It's, it's super relevant in the work we do in building teams. So uh, oh, uh, if you yeah. wouldn't mind, just talk a little bit about your pillars in your book. Absolutely. Well, so, yeah, pillar one is um, 
create psychological safety. And psychological safety essentially is group trust. Um, there's a professor at Harvard Business School named Amy Edmondson, who's been studying this for many decades. And what I've learned in my work, there was a study that Google did a few years back called Project Aristotle. And they spent a few years really studying what are the necessary conditions to create high performance for teams. And after three years of studying this and looking at all kinds of data and information and research that they'd done, they found that psychological safety was the number one by far most important element of team success. And it basically means that the group is safe enough for what? Risk-taking, um, disagreeing, making mistakes, challenging each other, knowing that those things can happen. I'm not going to get kicked out of the group. I'm not going to get shamed, ridiculed, right? We can have a difference of opinion. We can make a mistake. I mean, again, think of it in the classroom, the teacher that it's not okay to make a mistake. The kids don't feel safe to ask the question when they don't know the answer. The, the coach on the team that like berates you for making an error in, in the game, all of a sudden it's like everyone's uptight. That's true whether we're talking about a school or a business or a family or a church or a sports team. Um, and the, the, the way that we build more psychological safety from a leadership perspective is by leaders operating with authenticity and vulnerabilities we were talking about. So that pillar is foundational because without that, it's very difficult, um, you know, to create success and, and ultimately build a strong culture with any team, any group. Um, the second pillar is focusing on inclusion and belonging. And, and for me, this was actually the real reason that I wanted to write this book. So I wrote my last book prior to we're all in this together. It's called bring your whole self to work came out in 2018. I wasn't going to write another book for a while because as I was saying earlier, writing books isn't my favorite thing to do. Not to mention it takes a toll on me and the family and I usually have to go away to write. And so when I finished, I was like, I'm good. I'm going to wait a few more years. But I got a really strong hit like a month after Bring Your Whole Self to Work came out that I had to write another book and it had to come out in 2020 and it had to be called We're All in This Together. And it was weird. It was like, I've never had that happen in any of my previous books that it was like this really clear message. And I literally did not want, like, if you just saw me walking down the street, you would have thought I was a crazy person, like talking to this guy, like, leave me alone. I don't want this idea. Go find someone else. I'm busy. Like, sorry. Um, but, and the reason being was because I just started to see things as they were evolving politically, culturally, socially, racially, and otherwise in a way I was hearing it. I was seeing it. I mean, everyone was right with what was happening the level of divisiveness and then a lot of conversations around diversity and inclusion and belonging that felt really important to me. But there was something about it. And again, as I shared earlier, I grew up in Oakland, white kid raised by a single mom, you know, went to public high school and had had a lot of really interesting experiences that I didn't realize were that interesting or unique until like I went to college. So I go to college at Stanford 45 minutes from where I grew up. And it's like, I went to a different planet. And when I would, the kids from home in Oakland would ask me, what's it like at Stanford? I would say, well, it's really cool. It's interesting. It's beautiful. The kids are all over fascinating. And, you know, I was like, but I've never been around this many white people in my life, which was true. As weird as that sounds coming from a white kid, it was like, that was my real experience. And I say all that because I'd spent most of the first 15, 17 years doing my work, not really talking much about race, not really talking much about gender. It would come up but I would sort of leave it alone. Cause I'm like, you know what, who wants to hear from me? 
I need to be mindful and respectful. There, there's all these experts in this field of diversity and inclusion. There's people who have lived experience. Like, I don't think women want to hear me talk about gender. I don't think people of color want to hear me talk about race. Like, I'm a straight white guy. And I was aware of that. And in the last few years, my thinking started to change pretty significantly because I realized like, oh, we're all a part of this conversation. And actually men and white people and straight people are a really important part of this conversation that for a long time, for a variety of reasons, have opted out because, oh, it's uncomfortable or I don't see it or I'm not paying attention or it gets political or whatever the reason is, totally understand. But what we now know in terms of pure performance, if you want a team to perform at the highest level and you're not paying attention to the diversity of your team, you're not focused on making sure if people feel included and ultimately there's not a sense of belonging, your team's not going to thrive. And it does not matter what everybody's race and gender is. Not that those things aren't important. They're super important. However, belonging is a fundamental human need that everybody has. Yeah. And in terms of really looking at things from a diversity perspective and an inclusion perspective, we all have blind spots and biases. And a big part of what's going on in our culture right now is trying to understand these more specifically and then figure out how we talk about them in a way that actually brings people together. It is not easy. It's hard. It's uncomfortable. But again, it's like I say a lot of times to people, it's like, hey, if you know, talking about racism or sexism makes you feel uncomfortable, imagine actually experiencing racism or sexism in a way that's detrimental to your life and your career and everything. Like those are not the same thing. They're both challenging, but I would argue that one is much more challenging than the other. So as our friend Brene Brown likes to say, choosing not to talk about things because they make us uncomfortable is the epitome of privilege. privilege yeah. So again, what I try to talk about in this pillar is not to shame people, not to make people wrong, but like, hey, can we, as I say in my work, lower the waterline on the iceberg? Can we get more real and more vulnerable and actually engage in some of these which leads into pillar three, which we'll talk about in more depth, which can we have these, what I call sweaty palm conversations. Mike, if I can jump in here real quick before we yeah. leave pillar two, because, you know, yeah. as, as I read through the book, you know, and each pillar has just some wonderful, wonderful uh, takeaways. But what pillar two illustrated to me was the difference between inclusion and belonging. Because yes. in education, we're always talking about being more inclusive, include yes. certain segments of our student population. Yep. And it always felt a little bit uncomfortable, and I, and I was never really sure why. And then yep. the way that you explained it in the book was when we talk about being inclusive, well, one group has to include another group, yep. which implies that the group that's doing the including has slightly more power or a great deal more power than those who are being included. But when yes. you explained it as belonging – that includes everybody from the outset. We're all uh, in this together, so to speak. Um, yeah. But yeah, that was that was a, the biggest takeaway, maybe from the entire book for me. Well, well, I appreciate you saying that. You know that that insight. I had a conversation with my friend and and client Eric Severson, who's now the chief people officer at Neiman Marcus. He and I've known each other for years. He worked at Gap for a long time and ran HR there. And then when I interviewed him specifically for this book, he was working, he was running HR for DeVita. But he said that to me, and Eric's a really interesting guy who's, who's looked at and studied diversity and inclusion in a lot of ways. And Eric, Eric's straight, I mean, he's white, he's, he's male, but he happens to be gay, so he's not straight. And he has a really interesting perspective and has shared a lot of his story. But he said that thing to me that, Chris, you just talked about. He's like, when we talk about inclusion, it's like there's an in-group and an out-group, and the in-group says, okay, now you're included. Right. We're going to let the whatever fill in the blank, you know, non-dominant group, you're now included here. And 
And while, look, there is some reality to that, that those of us who find ourselves in a dominant group, again, a leadership position, if you're the principal at a school, if you're the superintendent of a district, if you're the you know VP of marketing for a corporation, if you're the manager of a baseball team, like regardless of your race, and, and the group you find yourself in, you are in a privileged position. So being inclusive as a leader is really important. However, if we stop at simply focusing on inclusion, we continue to perpetuate the sort of dominant versus non-dominant in versus out. Ultimately, if we can get to that place of belonging, and what Eric said to me in that same conversation that I found fascinating, he said, you know, when I talk to people, a, a lot of times straight white men who will say things like, I don't know where I fit in the whole conversation around diversity and inclusion because I don't feel included in those conversations. I end up feeling bad about myself. I'm not really sure what to do or what to say. And I don't feel like I have anything to offer because I don't know what it's like to be a woman or I don't know what it's like to be gay or, you know, Latino or Asian American or whatever they, right? And what Eric will say is, have you ever experienced not belonging? And then he said, every person I've ever talked to says, of course, I felt I've experienced not belonging. He's okay. So you know what it feels like to belong, right? And you know what it feels like not to belong. So when you shift it to that realm, it's not avoiding, let's not talk about race and gender because those are uncomfortable. It's like ultimately where we want to get to is a place where everyone knows at this school or on this team or in this family or at this church or at this company, everyone belongs. Right. And that is Yes, idealistic. Yes, super challenging. But ultimately, if we think of Maslow's hierarchy, which I talk about in the book, it's on the pyramid. It's on the hierarchy of needs. It's a fundamental human need. And look, what we've learned, sadly, people want to belong so much, they will believe a conspiracy theory, a dangerous conspiracy theory, so as to belong to a group right? We know this. You look at all the data and the research about why do kids join gangs? It's dangerous, but it's safe because I belong. I'm part of something. Even though we could take a step back and go, wait a minute, that's dangerous. That's detrimental to your well-being. That's not good for yourself or your family or your community. But yeah, I belong to this group. And so again, you see this in high schools and, and even elementary schools all the time. It's like we separate ourselves from one another because that need to belong is so strong. So what leaders got to do is figure out how to make that belonging as open and inclusive as possible. And ultimately where we want to get to, you know, Brene Brown's work has focused a lot on this in the last few years is that like, if we decide we're going to connect with each other based on who we dislike or who we hate, that's like the lowest level of belonging. And it's really dangerous. Yeah. Where we want to get to is belonging based on values and beliefs and ideals that are positive and inclusive. Well said. All right, moving to pillar three. Yes. Well, so again, as I was alluding to, right, this pillar three is, is about really embracing sweaty palm conversations. Now, what does that mean exactly? I, I had a mentor of mine years ago say this thing to me that I never forgot. He said, Mike, you know what stands between you and the kind of relationships you really want to have with people? I said, what's that? He said, it's probably a 10 minute sweaty palm conversation you're too afraid to have. He said, if you get good at those 10 minute sweaty palm conversations, you'll have fantastic relationships. You'll build trust. You'll get to know people who are different than you. You'll talk about the elephant in the room. You'll address conflicts, issues, challenges. He said, but if you do like most of us and you avoid them because they can be uncomfortable, they can be awkward. Sometimes people get their feelings hurt. Sometimes they don't go well. He's like, then you end up being a victim of who you work with, who you live with. And he's so right. And I, like most humans that I know, struggle with sweaty palm conversations because it is way easier to avoid them. It is way easier for if we, if I have an issue with, you know, Joe or Susie to go and talk to someone else about it and go, yeah, I know Susie's getting on my nerves. So is Joe. Oh, I hate that. Right. And then we talk about it instead of going to talk directly to Joe or to Susie. 
And, you know, in the world that we live now, whether we're talking about politics, we're talking about culture, we're talking about race, it could even be, I mean, I can only imagine the challenges that you all are facing as educators. I feel for every, you know, district administrator, every school site administrator having to make decisions based on safety and protocols and COVID and what people think and and everyone coming at you, no matter what you do, people are going to be mad at you. Right. And, and so it's like, how do we talk about these things in a way where we can find common ground, respect each other, but no, we're not always. And in fact, not often going to agree, but we still have to figure out how to not only coexist, but like work together with each other. So, I mean, I, I can talk more about it, but I'm curious. And again, I don't mean to turn this around and start asking you guys no, questions. Please, but like, go for it. What, what are, I mean, what are some of the sweaty palm conversations that are most challenging right now for each of you in the roles that you're in and given kind of what's going on at your school, in your district, and just in general? Well, for me, I'm, I'm also on our district's uh, negotiating team with the teachers union. And, oh, right. And, well, and, <laughs> Lots and, of sweaty bomb conversations there. It definitely there. is. And, but as you just alluded to, uh, there are some teachers and some parents that can't wait for their kids to come back to school. Yes. And there's yeah. the whole other side of it where it may never be safe enough, or at least that's how they've right. framed it in their minds right now. And then you've right. got people all across the continuum. Uh, so no matter which point of view you're dealing with, they feel very strongly about it. And, you know, yeah. like you said, it's it's easy to avoid those conversations, but then we're just kicking the can uh, further down the road. And I know in our district, we're looking at bringing students back within a couple of weeks to yeah. uh, some form of in-person learning. Uh, so uh, there's a lot, a lot of sweaty palm conversations there that, that you just need to have. And, you know, that's something that I've kind of revisited often in my life, both uh, personally and professionally, that sometimes you just have to sit down and have the conversation and, and see where it goes. And I've never regretted it. I've never, I've never once walked away from one of those and said, well, I'm sorry I brought that up. It just yeah. doesn't happen. Well, and, and that's, look, I mean, I think with the, you know, like, so our girls, we got a sixth grader and a ninth grader and like our sixth grader, she's been back to school since November, like a couple days a week for a couple hours. Our ninth grader has not stepped foot on campus at high school yet. She's been on zoom the whole time, you know, every district, whether we're here in California, in other States, things are different. It varies, you know, but it's like what I do find just using this as an example, because almost everyone can relate to this, whether they're in education, like you all are or not, because if you have kids or grandkids or nieces or nephews, it's this conversation. And it's tricky because it hits on so many levels. Right. And, and what ultimately happens when we're talking about, and if we even take it out of the realm of, COVID and schools and kids coming back to school, we just talk about, you know, inside of any team or organization, there, there are those sort of sacred cows that we talk about. Ooh, when we talk about that one, like people go to one side or the other, or it brings up a lot of emotion or people have a lot, a lot of strong opinions. You think about, you know, the political world we find ourselves in right now. The tricky part is how do we have these conversations effectively? And what we tend to do is either avoid them because they are uncomfortable or awkward, or we go into them with the intention of, I'm going to prove my point. I'm going to win this argument, right? I, I often will say to people, and look, I'm, I'm guilty of doing this as well. So I don't, I'm not trying to sound holier than thou, but have you ever in your life written like a rant on Facebook, just as an example about something and had someone who disagrees with you go, you know what? Good point. I never thought of it that way. I'm changing my opinion. <laughs> not one time in the history of Facebook. I don't think has that ever happened, right? But again, we still do it because part of what we want to do is just go on there and say, oh, I can't believe blah, 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 whatever we're, you know, venting about. The thing is though, what that is filled with 
as I talk a lot about in the book and in my work is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is I'm right, you're wrong. And if that's the way we go into a conversation, it's never going to go well unless the other person already 100% agrees with us. It's going to create a problem. It's going to make things worse. So the challenge is, can we have sweaty palm conversations? Can we be convicted, believe what we believe still strongly, but still be open enough to listen to what other people have to say or where they're coming from? You know, if you take the school example, on the one side, the person who's going crazy because like, I want my kids back in school is probably, I would imagine, because I would love both of our girls to be back in school full time on one level, because I can see the impact on their mental health. I can see the challenge it poses for each of them individually, as well as for our family and all, right? And on the other extreme, the family who's saying that it'll never be safe enough, both of those things, what connects both of those positions in, from my perspective, even though there's probably a whole story behind each one, is fear. What are we afraid of? I'm afraid if my kid goes back to school, they'll get sick or someone else will get sick or the teachers will get sick or then grandma Josie will get sick or something bad will happen. Or I'm afraid if they don't go back to school, they're going to fall behind. They're never going to catch up. They're not going to get to go to college, whatever the heck, depending on their age, or they're going to drive me crazy at home as they have been, or some version of it's going to like, they're going to get depressed or end up with, you know, I mean, we're like, so but I think at some level, if we can then find, okay, so we're, how are you feeling? I'm feeling scared. Okay, I'm feeling scared too. Maybe what we're feeling scared about is different, but can we connect on the level of we're human beings who are scared dealing with something we've never dealt with before? This is hard, and there's usually not a right answer to most of the things that we have sweaty palm conversations about. What about you, Eric? I didn't, uh, you know, I want to hear your sweaty palm conversations. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I, I When I was thinking about that question, I was thinking about it, you know, obviously in the terms of the pandemic and what that's meant for schools. And, I, you know, we think about uh, our, our teachers and our school staff right now specifically, you know, they're they're kind of they're they're living through trauma. Right. Um, yep. And we also have to realize that that pandemic has, has imposed one type of trauma. But in, even with that going on, life hasn't stopped. So people have other things going on that have nothing to do with the pandemic or COVID-19 and they have family things going on and they have challenges and they have celebrations and all these things. Uh, so in, in, in light of all that, you know, every conversation in some ways that may not be a sweaty bomb conversation pre-pandemic has become one because our yeah. resiliency windows are, are closed and, and people are, are, you know, responding with kind of that, that trauma brain and they're sometimes yeah. getting really, um, worked up or upset or, or triggered or they're responding from a very emotional place because of that. So yes. um, I always have to, for me, one of the things I'm trying to do in every conversation, some of the ones that seem to be the most innocuous topics end up being very challenging. So I always have to try to remember to, when I go into one of those conversations is, um, within myself, check my own, like, what's, what's my goal? What's my objective in this conversation? It's not necessarily yeah. to be right. Like you say, it's not necessarily to be self-righteous, but like you said, to have conviction means, you know, being able to believe firmly in what I know and what I believe, but also being open to the dialogue and listening to others and, and yeah. be willing to know that maybe I don't always have the right answers. And so I have found that in a lot of those conversations, the best thing I can do is to really focus on my listening and not coming in, you know, that, like you say, yeah. you know, I'm seeking first to understand than to be understood. Totally. And that, look, I mean, and it's hard sometimes for all of us, you know, I, I've been saying this a lot the last few months, like, I don't think any of us are playing with a full deck right now, emotionally. And I don't mean that disparagingly. It's not that we, it's not an excuse, but it's like, it's hard. It's kind of like, if you think about it in sports terms, it's like an athlete or a team, like late in the season, like kind of banged up and the games matter 
more than ever. So you can't use the excuse to like, Hey, we played, you know, a hundred and whatever games, right? You still got to get out there and play, but nobody's fully healthy. Nobody's. And so mentally, emotionally, most of us are not on the top of our game right now. And so sometimes like when someone will snap at me, whether it's someone in my house or someone outside of my house, I try to just take a breath and remember, okay, you know, and we're raising, you know, a teen and a tween in our house. So I have to do this all the time, irrespective even of COVID of like, okay, like they're just responding based on what's going on. And I think that's often the truth in life. Again, it doesn't give people a free pass, but I think, you know, there's a, a saying that I've used in, and I'm sure you guys have heard me say this before. And when I speak in, in, in writing too, it's this notion of, you know, can we be easy to impress and hard to offend? And those two things are actually really challenging because most of us are easy to offend and hard to impress in life. And if we can flip it around and really like, okay, I'm going to be easily impressed by life and human beings and what happens. And I'm going to be really hard to offend. Like I'm not going to take things personally. And that's hard to do. And a lot of times I would imagine as educators, as administrators, classroom teachers, staff, other places that people will vent their frustration to you and it's often not about you at all. It's right. just, let me just get mad here because my kid got in trouble or this other thing happened or the school's not open or I'm having a hard time and I lost my job and right, I got three kids at home and it's like a real thing. But you know what? You're a safe person. You're the principal of the school. I'm going to yell at you or I'm going to send you a nasty email and you're going to get all of my anger and frustration about what's going on in my life. And it's like you have to then be mature enough not to let someone just walk all over you. But at the same time, how do I not take that personally? Yeah. And like, hey, let's have a conversation about this on the phone or in real time if we can, as opposed to going back and forth on email or whatever, you know, as an example, but this happens in life. And I see this a lot when I talk to leaders, it's like, when you're a leader, you are going to get a lot of projection at times. You'll get more credit than you deserve. And at times you'll get more blame than you deserve. And you sort of, you know, John Stewart, who I love the, you know, used to host the daily show would always talk about like his rabid fans and his detractors, people who hated him. He said he always thought about it like in, in figure skating when you watch the Olympics. It's like you throw out the top score and the bottom score. It's like <laughs> exactly right. right. And then he's like, and then you'd go in the middle. Somewhere in the middle is probably, I'm probably not as great as the people who think I'm so great. And I'm probably not as terrible as people who think I'm terrible. I'm somewhere in the middle. And he's saying this as a famous person and a comedian and, and an entertainer. But I think that's a really good leadership and life practice because you know, I mean, just think about how we read comments on social media or get feedback. You know, I mean, as I, I laugh about this, even as a presenter, you know, I'll give a presentation and they'll say, well, Mike, here's the feedback from your presentation at the conference or whatever. And it's like, of course, I scroll through it immediately to see like the three people who thought I was an idiot. And then I'm like, oh, it was terrible. They saw right through me and I'm such an idiot. And it's like, there were like 48 other comments, but those were the, you know, or the nasty comment on, um, I got, I got a review on one of my books a couple of years ago. It was my third book. And some woman, I don't know why, went after me and like I was a terrible parent and how could I write these things and what's the matter with me and my family is to be ashamed of me. And I was, like, I was like a mess for like 48 hours. And Michelle says to me, my wife says to me, babe, this woman does not know you. She's never met you. Like, why are you letting her rent space in your head? What are you doing? And I was like, oh yeah, that's right. Like, who am I trying to impress? She's entitled to her opinion. And if she read my book and thought I was a terrible father and should be ashamed of myself, like she's, it's a free country. She can have that opinion and write that on Amazon if she wants to, which she did. But like, I don't have to take it on. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. I think again, sweaty palm conversations aren't always about criticism necessarily, but what they're about is 
being able to address things that are sensitive. You know, I learned a lesson. I, I can't remember which of my books I wrote this in, quite frankly, but I shared it in one of my books. Um, when I was in seventh grade, my friend Jarrett's dad died suddenly, super sad. And it was one of the first experiences I'd had like close to his dad, you know, he would like drive to school and this was the eighties. So he had a pickup truck. We'd jump in the back of the truck and he'd take us up to school when we were in elementary school. And we were our first year in junior high school and Jared's dad dies that fall. And I remember being so sad and so scared. And it was like, he had a heart attack and it was awful. And he didn't come to school for a week. And, um, I don't remember why I didn't go to the funeral, but I didn't. And he came back to school and I remember being kind of scared to see him because I didn't really know what to say, what to do, how to interact with them. I figured he'd be really sad and upset, but I hadn't dealt with grief as a 12 or 13 year old, however old I was. And I just tried to keep it light and talk to him. And, you know, and, and then like three days after he'd come back to school, he pulls me aside one day and he says, Mike, you haven't said anything to me about my dad. And I was like ashamed and embarrassed and like totally caught off guard. And I, what do I say? And I, and I looked him in the eye and I said, Jared, man, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't know what to say. And then he said something so simple, but so profound. I'm so glad he said it. He looked me right in the eye and he said, you could have just said that. And I was like, wow. And you know, I mean, what a, he was 12 or 13. We were seventh graders, but he said that to me and I never forgot it. And yeah, I did feel embarrassed and I did feel ashamed, but I remembered, you know what? If you don't know what to say, you can just say, I don't know what to say. And that's a vulnerable, but real thing. I'm thinking about you. I don't know what to say to you, but I just want you to know, like, you know, whether we're talking about grief or loss and look, we're all dealing with so much grief and loss in our lives or in the lives of the people around us. It's almost to the point where it doesn't even seem real. Sometimes I get the text message or the note, or my wife will tell me some story and I'm like, I can't, you know, watch the news and it's like overwhelming. But I think at some level, like that's something that's really important to be able, Eric, to your point, can we listen to people? Can we have empathy for people's experience? We don't always have to have the answer because often we don't. We don't always have to be able to relate personally because often we can't. But what we can do is listen to them, hear them, and let them know, I see you, I hear you, what you're saying matters. It's not even all that important that I agree necessarily. It's just that I can be there. That's a lot of sweaty palm conversations are much more, Eric, to your point about listening and being present than actually, you know, defending our position or arguing our point or bringing up that hard truth, which is sometimes part of it, but it's creating enough of a space, whether we're talking about a staff of teachers or a team at a school, or we're talking about a business team, it's creating an environment that's safe enough that we can talk about certain things. And we're not, again, going to get shamed or ridiculed. It goes back to that psychological safety kicked out of the group simply because we have a dissenting opinion or we have some kind of perspective that's different than other people's. Well, in this pandemic, you know, learning as a school administrator, school principal, not always having the answers. You know, we're, we're used to liking to be able to have answers and give direction sure. and everything is is constantly changing. So we've had to be come from a place of being able to say to a teacher, I don't have the answer for you. I don't know, but I can right. understand why that's frustrating. So uh, yeah. it's certainly been a, a challenge this year. But Mike, I want to give you an opportunity if you would just talk a little bit about uh, Pillar 4 and then we want to circle <laughs> back and have a little bit of fun with Pillar 3. Yes, yes. Um, well, pillar four is is caring about and challenging each other. So being able to do both of those things at the same time. You know, I, I did a, a podcast interview on my own podcast about a year and a half ago with my um, pitching coach from Stanford, Dean Stotts, who's a dear friend and mentor of mine. I've known him since, you know, the early 90s when he started recruiting me at Stanford. He since has retired, but he coached at Stanford for 37 years. Great guy. 
Um, you know, he and his wife, Kathy were at our wedding, but, but kind of old school. And, and he and I, over the years, lots of debates about politics and things in life. And, but Dean said this really great thing to me on my podcast when I interviewed him, he said his philosophy for coaching over all those years, he said, here, here's, here's what it was, Mike. He said, I knew that I had to love you hard so I could push you hard. And I said, and I was actually surprised to hear that come out of his mouth, just given his personality. And I said, what do you mean by that? Tell me more. And he said, what I knew was whether I was coaching you or any of the other guys I coached for 37 years at Stanford and all those teams, that if I established that I loved and cared about you and valued you as a person, then you would give me permission, either directly or more indirectly, either explicitly or more implicitly, I could push you as hard as I needed to push you to get the most out of you. But if I didn't establish that the love and the care was there, you weren't going to let me push you. And when he said that, I thought, wow, that's a great philosophy for coaching baseball, but that's a great philosophy for teaching, for coaching anything, for leadership, for life. It's like, if you can create that environment where the, the care is established and, and reinforced all the time, we care about each other, we value each other, then what happens is the permission to push and to challenge and to hold each other accountable is not only allowed, it's encouraged and it's appreciated. You know, the example, one of the examples I use in the book, and I'm a, I'm a, I love baseball and played, right? But I'm also a huge basketball fan and grew up here in the Bay Area, Golden State Warriors fan since I was a kid and they were terrible forever. And now, you know, these last number of years, they've been pretty good, which has been fun for us. But one of their players, Draymond Green, who, uh, if, if he's not on your team, you hate him because he's really loud and passionate and get right. As a Lakers fan, he's not, you're right. <laughs> right, yeah. And even when he's on your team, sometimes you hate him because he does crazy things like get double technicals the other night and lose the game for the Warriors. But yeah. The thing that Draymond Green does is he's like the heart and soul of their team. And I love watching him because he yells at the guys, his teammates, but he does it in a way it's never disrespectful. It's never showing them up. It's this way of like, he'll get right up in someone's face. And this year the Warriors have this kid, um, Wiseman, who's a, a rookie, phenomenal talent. And you see Draymond coaching him and sort of yelling at him a lot. But you can tell, and I don't know, I haven't done any work with the Warriors, so I don't know personally, but you can tell they've built a culture within that organization and Draymond specifically that's like, we all love and care about each other. This is a family. We believe in what we're doing. We have a really high bar of expectation, but there's so much love that when Draymond yells at the, his teammates, you know that they appreciate it because it's a way of his, him expressing not only his love and care, but I want you and I want us to be the best we can possibly be. Now, look, at a school, in a business, in life, it's hard because we're not usually going to be getting in each other's face and yelling at each other like on the Hopefully basketball not. court. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's not going to go down so well with your fellow, you know, your colleagues. However, that energy, though, of can we really care about each other first and foremost? And then do we then allow ourselves and one another permission to push each other? Yeah. Because look, one of the most important sweaty palm conversations that we don't often have is holding each other accountable, not with shame, not with judgment, not that you're bad, you're wrong, but you said, or we said, this is the standard. And if someone doesn't live up to that standard, if no one calls them out on it, then it's like, like, well, look, I mean, think about it with kids, right? It's like the homework's due. It's like, okay. And then you don't turn the homework in and the teacher doesn't say anything. It's no big deal. You can turn it in a day later, two days. Like, guess what happens? The kid's never going to turn their homework in on time. Because there's no accountability, there's no consequence, there's no nothing for why should I do this? I don't feel like it, right? And again, it doesn't have to be harsh, but it has to be clear. This is the expectation and we acknowledge and appreciate when you meet or exceed the expectation. And when you don't, someone cares about you enough to let you know, hey, you know what? That wasn't quite what we expected. We need better. And then even though it's a little uncomfortable in the moment, we all want to be a part of teams where people are holding us accountable and paying attention. Yeah, right. Well said. 
Okay, so um, you know those of those that listen to Alone with Our Principles, they know that we you know we like to have a lot of fun. We always infuse like uh, I don't know '80s movies, John Hughes, and of course baseball. Any chance we get, <laughs> oh, yeah. so uh, we want yes. to have some fun with you on this one. Circling back just a second to the sweaty palm yes. conversation. So you know, uh, Ferris Bueller comes up in every episode. Pretty much, it's uh, our theme yes. song. Uh, you'll hear the, yeah. for those that uh, <laughs> those that maybe listening that don't know the movie. There's a point in the movie where uh, Cameron Ferris's friend steals his dad's car or takes his dad's car with uh, Ferris. Is uh, you know, uh, encouragement, encouragement. Right. <laughs> and they go out yes. and have a, a day on the town in Chicago. But um, when they bring the car back uh, through the process of trying to reverse the miles on the car, the car ends up going out of the garage and down below <laughs> onto the ground, wrecking this this uh, phenomenal Ferrari. So the question yes. I have for you, Mike, is so thinking about that scenario, thinking about Cameron, and um, you know, uh, Cameron says that me and Morris, his dad, are just going to have to have a little chat. Uh, what kind of advice might you have for Cameron in that situation when he has to talk about wrecking his dad's car? Well, first of all, can I just tell you that, like, so I love that movie and I hate that scene because every time, even as a 47-year-old, when I watched that, and we showed Ferris Bueller's to our girls probably about a year ago, whenever I watched the scene of the car and the car goes, like, it literally physically... <laughs> It physically hurts because I think about that poor kid having to talk to his dad or have his dad see what happens. So that said, I'll just preface it with that. I do think, and what's really beautiful about that scene in the movie, though, you see that moment where Cameron, because what happens is, again, people watch the movie, he starts kicking the car and banging on the car and he's so mad at his dad. And then the car ends up falling off the blocks and going out the back as, as Eric, you just explained. But the deeper understanding that we all have watching the movie, at least that I have, is that he and his dad have issues in their relationship. And there's a lack of authenticity and vulnerability in their relationship, father to son. And that his dad loves the damn car more than Cameron feels loved by his dad. So my hope, my hope is that Cameron has the courage to, first of all, own up to the fact that, dad, I wrecked your car. That's a terrible thing to do. I'm really sorry. And you know what? Like... I love you and I miss you and I wish we had a deeper relationship. So maybe it's an opening for that real conversation. And again, when I watched it as a kid growing up, when I was younger, I felt for Cameron. As I watch it now, I think about the father son that we never get to see the dad. We never get to see that relationship. But I think about what that would be like, both the anger I would have if my kid wrecked my car, but also, oh my gosh, my kid's crying out for help. Maybe this is a moment for me to actually pay attention and listen to him. Maybe I can be a better father. So wow. that's my take on it. That was great. <laughs> oh, Dad, you sounded like Dirty Harry just then. Now we move to the extra credit portion of our podcast. And okay, good. I like extra credit. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> and these are always questions that are outside the box or flat out weird in some cases. But, you know, again, Mike, we really appreciate you being here uh, with us today. And for Eric and I being the baseball fans that we are, we couldn't let you go without digging a little bit deeper into baseball. So sure. you, you mentioned being drafted by the Yankees in 1992. And when I looked at that, yes. I'm sure you're aware of this, but just a couple rounds prior to drafting you in 1992, the Yankees yes. picked up this uh, kid high school shortstop out of Kalamazoo, Michigan, named Derek Jeter, who went on to have yes. a, a pretty, pretty good career in the majors. He did pretty well. So yes. you were drafted by the Yankees that same year which yes. um, I thought was pretty cool. Yeah. And then um, looking up uh, some of your history, you also played for what I personally believe is the coolest named minor league team in history, the Lansing Lugnuts. Yes. Uh, where one <laughs> season uh, you went nine and six with, I think, a 340 ERA. That's pretty impressive. That's pretty good. Uh, yes. And did Thank I you. Did I read this correctly? Uh, you were teammates of Carlos Beltran uh, at, two, at two levels of the minors. 
Absolutely. So yeah, so so Jeter and I were drafted in 92, same year, you know, say we graduated high school that same year. Um, what you'll appreciate though, even more, I would imagine about this. So that summer of 92, I don't sign with the Yankees. Jeter signs with the Yankees, obviously. And a few years later, he's in the big leagues and has an incredible Hall of Fame career. I played for Team USA that summer, the junior national team. And my roommate was a skinny shortstop from Miami, Florida named Alex Rodriguez. Oh my goodness. Alex was a junior going back to his senior year. And there was only one guy on our team, AJ Hinch, who I ended up playing at Stanford with, who's now the new manager of the Detroit Tigers, who had been on the team the year before. And the shortstop on the year before was this kid from Kalamazoo named Derek Jeter, who the Yankees had just picked in the first round. Alex and Derek obviously don't know each other because Alex is in Florida and Derek's in Michigan. But all summer long, do you know what Alex wanted to know from AJ? Tell me about Derek Jeter. Oh, wow. It was fascinating because he knew that Derek Jeter was the number one high school shortstop in the country. And Alex was a year behind him, but was probably going to be the number one high school shortstop the next year coming out in the draft. We knew Alex was good. We didn't realize how good, but he was obsessed with knowing about Derek Jeter, which was fascinating. The next year, Alex ends up being the first pick by the Mariners and about a year later is in the big leagues. And then, of course, Derek and Alex become teammates with the Yankees. And there's all kinds of interesting history there. But that was really fascinating. And yes, Carlos Beltran and I got drafted in 95. He out of high school in Puerto Rico and me out of Stanford. Um, and we played together our first couple years in the minor leagues. But the thing about Beltran, he was a high school kid, super talented, like all the tools, but at that time couldn't figure it out. I mean, he just would, you know, and they turned him into a switch hitter and he'd miss curveballs by two feet. And, and you figured if he could ever figure it out. And the year after I got hurt, all my buddies that I'd gotten drafted with, I would stay in touch with them. And they were like, you know, who's going to be a stud? Carlos Beltran. And I was like, really? They're like, yeah, man, he's tearing it up in double A. And then the next year in 99, he was American League Rookie of the Year. So, wow. and, I got, and I got to see Carlos because Carlos played. I know he got himself into a little bit of trouble in his last year with the Astros. But he was playing for AJ, my buddy, and AJ was the manager of the Astros. And Carlos was in his last year when they won the World Series, and they came through to play the A's. And I got to go out and hung out around the cage during batting practice. So I got to see Carlos for the first time in many years, and that was a lot of fun. Wow, very cool. All right, now I'm not. Yeah, you probably do know this. Uh, at least I think I would. But um, who's the biggest name that you've ever struck out? Hmm. That's a good question. Well, there was so there was a guy named Jeff Jenkins who played at USC. Um, who then got to the big leagues with the Brewers and actually won a ring with the Phillies. And he and I were the same year. And he got me a bunch of times, but I did strike him out a few times when he was at SC. And um, then there was another guy named Aramis Ramirez, who hit a couple of huge home runs off me in spring training. But I actually did strike him out one time, thankfully. Um, But those guys were, I'm trying to think of guys that were the biggest names that I struck out. Um, yeah, probably Aramis Ramirez and Jeff Jenkins are the two that come to mind. I have a feeling you have one, don't you? I don't actually. I, did, I didn't look that up. <laughs> I, I couldn't find box scores for the for the Wilmington Blue Rocks. Um, so, uh, all right. Yeah. So, um, so on to our question here: um, If you could change the outcome of any game in Major League history, which game would that be? Hmm. So there's. There's two that pop into my mind, so I don't know if I'm cheating here. And, and one of them, you will absolutely, you'll remember both of them, but they both happened to the Oakland A's, my team that I grew up loving. I was actually at the Derek Jeter flip game oh, when wow. he flipped the ball. Nice. I, had, I had probably the, probably the best seats, maybe top two or three best seats I've ever had at the Oakland Coliseum in my life. I was sitting there with my sister, 
And when Jeter made that play, so anyone listening, this was 2001, the A's were actually up 2-0 in the series. They beat the Yankees both games in New York. They come back home. It's Messina who went to Stanford against Barry Zito, who is my favorite A's pitcher. And the Yankees end up winning that game one nothing. But the reason that they won, Posada, I think, hit a home run, is because there was this crazy play where Terrence Long hit a ball down the line and they missed the cutoff man. And Jeremy Giambi comes around to score and Derek Jeter out of nowhere runs up, grabs the ball and flips it over and they get Giambi out of the plate. And I turned to my sister right when it happened. I said, that's the weirdest and greatest defensive play I've ever seen on a baseball <laughs> yes, field. Like, exactly. True. Why was he there? Like, what was he doing there? I've never seen that before. And the reason why Giambi didn't even slide is because there was no play. Anyway, but I wish that Giambi would have slid. I still right. think he was safe, by the way. I still think he was safe, even though he didn't slide. And I wish there was replay in baseball because if he'd slid or they had replay, I think that would have changed and the A's would have won that game and they would have won the series and they might have won the World Series that year. The Yankees ended up losing the World Series that year. That was 9-11 year. Oh, we're going to talk year. more about that in a minute, Mike, when I have my turn. <laughs> the, 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 other, the other game that I would change is, it's, is the, uh, the Kirk Gibson home run All that right. I have to watch every friggin' year during the playoffs <laughs> is because it's... It is one of the greatest moments in the history of baseball. It's extraordinary what happened in 88 when Kirk Gibson hits that home run on one leg off Dennis Eckersley. Mm -hmm. But as an Oakland A's fan, and as good as they were, I mean, that was only game one, so they still should have come back and won that series. They were way better than the Dodgers. But if Gibson doesn't hit that home run, the A's win game one, they pretty well, pretty likely win that World Series. And for that amazing run that the A's had through the late 80s and early 90s, they only won one title and it was during the earthquake year the next year in 89 against the Giants, our other local team. So we really never got to celebrate that awesome team for being as good as they were because the one title they won, we were having a tragedy here in the Bay Area with the earthquake and they beat our other local team. So it wasn't as exciting. So those are my two. The part of the highlight of the Kirk Gibson home run that I always appreciate is the brake lights in the parking lot that you can see over the right field pavilion at Dodger Stadium. And the question I always ask is, if you're going to leave a one-run World Series game, terrible. Night, why are you there in the first place? <laughs> well, let, let, I'll, I'll say this. I, one thing about it, I've always, you know, growing up in the Bay Area, similar, I'm sure, being a New York fan, we all, you know, like to make fun of the L.A. fans. I went to the World Series game one in game seven in 2017 when they were playing the Astros because my buddy was managing the Astros. I'll say this. The Dodger fans, maybe because it had been so long since they were in the World Series, I was impressed. And I'm now, I'm taking back all of my disparaging comments for all the years over Dodger fans because like they were way into it. In game one, they won and Kershaw pitched great. And then game seven, they lost. And I was super excited because I was rooting for the Astros, but I actually felt for the Dodger fans and they stayed till the end, even though they got blown out in that game seven against the Astros. So something in the last 20, 25 years has shifted a little bit in LA, at least in my own personal experience. Yeah. I think, I think for our own safety and job security, we have to say that Dodger fans are pretty amazing because uh, that's right. That's right. We're given where you guys are. That's, well, our, superinten- our superintendent and one of our assistant superintendents are, are huge, huge Dodger fans and me being a Yankee yes. fan and Eric being a Braves fan, we just kind of have to suffer that uh, quietly well, a lot of the time. Well, I also think for what it's worth, and you can appreciate this as a Yankee, fan i think the dodgers fans just like the yankee fans have been humbled in the last number of years because again the red sox yankee rivalry for years was so one-sided and then it flipped and like the giants dodger rivalry was so one-sided for years and then it flipped and the giants won some world series and now that the dodgers won a title if they win a few more titles the dodger fans will start getting really obnoxious again oh, but no uh 
I think that the, <laughs> the, the Dodgers Padres is going to be a lot of fun this year. Yeah. All right, yes, Eric, yes. what about you? Uh, what game would you change? Eric? Okay, so uh, you probably didn't know this, Mike, but as Chris mentioned, Atlanta Braves fan, and everybody wants to know why. Since I grew up in Southern California, I mean, I, I blame it on Turner Broadcasting, TBS, TBS, being able to watch. Yeah. You know, in the in the heydays when I really got into baseball in the '90s, when uh, you know the big three and all that. So, um, but yeah. my game is going to be the 2012 National League Wild Card game. This was the first year that the Wild Card game was implemented in Major League Baseball, oh, and okay. it was. Um, um, the Cardinals and the Braves, and there was a infield fly call. Andrelton Simmons hits a fly ball, and Sam Holbrook, the umpire, calls infield fly, uh, which I, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert in infield fly rules, so I'm not even going to go there. <laughs> um, but um, the bases would have been loaded with one out had that not been called. And um, so, you know, had that ball just traveled out in the outfield, left field, maybe another five feet, we'd probably still be in the game. We would have had the bases loaded. And the second reason why um, I would like to change that game is because that was also Chipper Jones' final game where he went one for five, uh, being a Braves right. fan, of course, um, huge, huge Chipper fan. And so that was his last game. I would have loved to seen him go on into the NLDS yeah. and potentially the World Series. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. All right. And, and mine, um, like you just kind of alluded to it uh, a little bit ago, um, this is a game that I've never rewatched in the 20 years since. I've, of course, seen the heartbreaking lowlights at the end of it. Uh, I'm talking about, you know, I didn't even like researching it again for this episode of our podcast. <laughs> I mean, I, I experienced a, a mild... You going through the pain for oh, us. Oh, I, I, I think it's some kind of post-traumatic tra post stress disorder that I had to go through, uh, or post-Luis Gonzalez uh, stress <laughs> disorder, as the case may be. But I'm talking, of course, about Game 7 of the 2001 World Series between the Yankees and the Arizona Diamondbacks. And yeah. that one hurt for a lot of reasons, and it would have hurt anyway. But like you mentioned, Mike, it's coming off of 9-11, you know, that it just happened a couple months prior. And for the city of New York uh, to be trying to rebound from that and uh, having the Yankees uh, go to the World Series that year, uh, it was a great opportunity. And then if you remember the World Series – the Yankees again went down two games to none, fought back yeah. to come to take yeah. a three-two series lead with some of the greatest comebacks that that you'll ever see. Unbelievable! Yeah, game, unbelievable. Yeah, game four <laughs> and five they won in walk-off fashion. Derek Jeter became Mister November. Uh, so now yep. we're up three to two. Uh, game six they just got obliterated. Uh, so we go to game seven in Arizona, and they're down one nothing in the seventh in game seven. Uh, with my least favorite Major League Baseball player of all time, Kurt Schilling, on the mound. <laughs> uh, yes. so, so Tino Martinez ties the game with a single. Uh, then in the, the eighth inning, uh, Alfonso Soriano homers off of Schilling, giving the Yankees a 2-1 right. lead. So, all right, let's give the ball to Mariano Rivera for his two-inning save and get the heck Done. out of here and, and play New York, New York, and let's celebrate. Uh, didn't, didn't quite go that way. Uh, so Mariano comes in, and in the eighth inning, he strikes out. Gonzalez, he strikes out Matt Williams, gives up a cheap single to, to Steve Finley, and then strikes out Danny Bautista. Strikes out three of the four batters. We're good. I'm sitting back going, man, this is great. 9-11, perfect. I didn't say it's over because I do believe in the jinx. But it was yep. looking pretty good at that point. So then, you know, everything's going according to plan. In the ninth inning, Arizona's got their seven, eight, nine hitters coming up. Uh, so anyway, 
Um, yada, yada, yada. Mariano makes a throwing error, force out a third, game-tying double. And then Luis Gonzalez hits the flare. Um, to this day, I don't know why Joe Torre was playing the infield in against Mariano Rivera. If the infield is playing back, Jeter catches the soft liner, and, and we're probably totally. having a different story. Well, so, that was the, and that was the weakest walk-off hit in the history uh, of walk-off hits, and it's in Game 7 of the World Series. Yeah. And, and not for nothing, how has Luis Gonzalez managed to dodge all this PED accusations after hitting know. 50 home runs that season? <laughs> No I idea. mean, you're looking, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm in no position to say he was right, <laughs> but you know, numbers right, don't right. lie. So, yeah. so anyway, that was a lot of fun. So I will say honorable mention though, um, you know, as a Braves fan, you know, of course we hate the Mets, but one of the greatest moments in baseball history, in my opinion, was the first game in Flushing right after 9-11. The Braves oh, yeah. came in to play the Mets and Mike Piazza hit a home run. Did that that was awesome. Never saw Flushing erupt like it did on that night. Yeah. So, you know, that was one of those moments I could not be mad at all. It was such an amazing That's moment. That's true. You know, and 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 I'll, I love hearing you guys share this, and I know we've been going long, but I, I have a great Dale Murphy story, oh, Eric, yeah. that I think you'll appreciate. And maybe I've even shared this with you guys before. But um, so I met a guy named Steve Decker when I was down at spring training talking to the Giants. And Steve played in the big leagues with the Giants for like five or six years. He was kind of, he was a backup catcher. Um, and he said his first year in the big leagues, he's on the road. They're playing the Phillies. It's 1993, I believe. And it was Dale Murphy, like the last year of his career, he played for the Phillies. And Decker grew up in like South Dakota somewhere, but grew up as a Braves fan because he watched TBS. Yeah. And Dale Murphy was his favorite player. And he was like, oh my God, Dale Murphy's in the on-deck circle. And Decker was like, it was a day game after a night game. It was getaway day. I got the start. So I'm behind home plate. Dale Murphy gets in the batter's box and he's like, I'm so excited. I'm so nervous. I can't believe Dale Murphy is standing right there. And he said, he's, he's digging in. And he said, right before he gets into the box, he leans over, he takes his bat, he taps me on the, the, the shin guard. And he says, Hey Dick, welcome to the big leagues. And he said, Mike, I almost fell over. <laughs> and he said, he, and he said, he told me, he said, Mike, he said, he said, Mike, I played in the major leagues for six years. He said, I hit a walk-off home run at Yankee stadium at one point in my career. Like I, I think he played for the Yanks at one point. Um, and he said, but that by far was the highlight of my major league baseball career yeah. that Dale Murphy knew my name and he welcomed me to the major leagues. He's like, and, and I often will share that as an example of the power of appreciation, like yeah. a, the littlest thing, just letting someone know, I see you, I know you, I know your name. I mean, that's again, from a leadership perspective, from a privileged perspective, you're someone like Dale Murphy and anyone listening, Dale Murphy was a superstar for the Atlanta Braves yeah. in the late seventies through the eighties. But it's like, if it's your, you know, your childhood idol in that case, that means so much. And sometimes I think we forget as human beings and as leaders, like the significance of just saying thank you or acknowledging someone. And especially given everything we've been talking about in the midst of people's stress and fear, in the midst of the angst or the sweaty palm conversations or the all this stuff happening, like I find not as a technique or a manipulation, but if you can, even in the middle of a tense situation, let someone know that you see them and you value them and you care about them that goes such a long way. And I think even as disconnected as we all are these days by everything that's going on, even across Zoom, even on a text message, even on a FaceTime or whatever, it's actually not that hard to do that. And it's yep. something that we can do all the time. Well, I think that's well, a perfect place to, to wrap up with you, Mike. Thank you again so much for being here. Uh, what's your next project? What can we, uh, what can we look forward to? Well, you know, at this point, I, I, I'm not writing a book anytime soon, according to my wife and, and me, but um, <laughs> Uh, no, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful to, thanks for having me on the show Thank you. and, and really excited. You know, when I wrote this book, we're all in this together. I had no idea it was going to come out during this crazy time, but 
but I've been really humbled and fortunate to get a chance to talk to so many people, even virtually through all of this. And so, you know, my focus right now is just continuing to try to do the work in whatever way I can virtually and, you know, support the people around me as well as all of our wonderful clients as we all continue to navigate through this, uh, you know, unprecedented time. All right. Well, uh, we'd like to remind our listeners, of course, about Mike's latest book, We're All in This Together. And Mike also hosts a podcast also called We're All in This Together. So, of course, we encourage uh, our listeners to, to check that out as well. Uh, thank you again so much, Mike. We appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Take care. That's the fact All right. With us, as always, is our fact checker extraordinaire, Miss Carrie Lewis. Hi, Carrie. Hello, gentlemen. Well, he was amazing, so I really don't have any fact checks because he was on point, but I do have for you the five titles of his book. So I have the first one, Focus on the Good Stuff, Be Yourself, Everyone Else is Already Taken, his third one, Nothing Changes Until You Do, Bring Your Whole Self to Work, and last but obviously not least, Then We Are All in This Together. I did want to do a little bit of a fact check here, just a shout out to our district in his fourth book. Uh, bring your whole self to work. He actually mentions our school district uh, in one setting. So I thought that was pretty cool too. Nice addition. Thank you for that. And that is all I have for you, gentlemen. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please take a minute to rate, review, and subscribe to the Alone With Our Principles podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more content, including videos, contests, and other information, you can follow us on our Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, this is Eric, and on behalf of Chris and Carrie, we hope you'll remember the words of the great philosopher Ferris Bueller, who once said, Life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. You're still here? It's over. Go home. <laughs>